We've made great progress in increasing the quality of evidence on which we make practice decisions in orthopedic surgery over the last 30 years. The JBGS publishes about 10 to 12% of level one manuscripts, in this case, randomized clinical trials, which is slowly increasing, but will never dominate. In fact, RCTs are valuable in this regard, but are not always useful. And we plan to discuss you know, the move to large practical trials to improve utility as well as issues of trial fragility. Because of the practicalities of our surgical field, level three and four, and these are often the non-randomized studies, in, uh, in this case, um, case reports in, included in that, in, in uh, case series, um, they're also going to be very valuable. And that's the, that's the hypothesis and, and the discussion points for today. Level five expert opinion still adds value as well, but the limitation therein should be highlighted. This is a discussion about evidence. Um, ortho evidence is about evidence. So I think we are in a really, really good place uh, to um, continue. Let me introduce Professor Mark Swinkowski, who's an orthopedic trauma surgeon and professor of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Minnesota Medical School. As many of you know, he's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Bone, uh, Bone and Joint Surgery. And for me, on a personal note, has been a uh, mentor and a collaborator for, gosh, I think at least a decade and a half. Um, and I anticipate we'll continue to work over the next decade. Welcome, Mark. I think it's actually... 17 years. Mo. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, welcome, uh, everyone, on the uh, discussion, and I look forward to our dialogue. Uh, we are going to be discussing the fact that all levels of evidence are useful in our clinical decision-making. I would like to uh, introduce Dr. Deb Bone, one of my partners. Uh, she is a hand surgeon at the University of Minnesota, a, a very excellent adult hand surgeon, but has a special interest in pediatric hand uh, surgery. She practices uh, at the university as well as at TRIA Orthopedic Center, where we uh, collaborate uh, frequently, and at Gillette uh, Children's Hospital. And most recently, Dr. Bone has uh, had a career shift and has moved uh, headfirst uh, into clinical research. And what I've asked her to do is to go into the history of the levels of evidence. And then uh, after that, I'll have a few brief comments on uh, where we are with those levels of evidence, and then we'll dig into the discussion. So Deb, thank you for doing this and uh, look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Dr. Swinkowski. Um, let me just pull up my slides here. <clears throat> so um, let me know if you can see we can, Deb. Yep, we can. it's all great. Great. So um, I was asked to present a little history of levels of evidence because I think that helps us to frame our discussion tonight. No uh, discussion about levels of evidence would be complete without the introduction of Dr. David Sackett. He was an American who trained in nephrology and internal medicine and then got a master's degree in epidemiology at Harvard. However, he became a Canadian by choice. He joined the University of McMaster Medical School when it first opened, I believe in 1967, and opened the first clinical epidemiology department. This was an important shift because until then, most people who were epidemiologists dealt with public health and statistics. Dr. Sackett's goal was really to bring um, evidence and research to apply to clinical care. And so um, he felt that the tenets of using research and epidemiology was to apply 
patient expectations or take patient expectations and um, wishes coupled with our clinical skills and the best available evidence. But that wasn't always clear as to how to do that. One of the things that he did is with some of his colleagues from McMaster wrote a series of articles in the Canadian Medical Journal on how to critically read the literature. Um, meanwhile, there was a Canadian task force on basically preventive medicine and trying to figure out what are the methodologies we will use to evaluate the evidence for um, our preventive care in our large Canadian health system. So from that organization, Dr. Sackett took those proposals and refined them and in, introduced them in uh, the, the journal Chest. So um, he uh, put forth this series of rules for levels of evidence. Um, these look very familiar. It's our level one, two, three, four, and five that we still use and apply today. And this was an effort to help clinicians take a study and apply it to how effectively they could use it to make decisions about patients. Um, of note, I think this is kind of um, fun. Um, he was not a big fan of expert opinion. And I guess keep in mind that um, Dr. Sackett was talking about very large populations with very common problems. And so his opinions on which levels were valuable probably differ from what we feel um, are valuable in orthopedics. But he was not a fan of expert opinion and that he reportedly liked to tell the story of George Washington, who was a healthy 68-year-old man who developed epiglottitis. And the experts of the day prescribed bloodletting, even though it was known that the correct treatment of choice was known to be tracheostomy since ancient Greek times. So basically died of iatrogenic exsanguination at the hands of the experts. So we'll um, leave it at that. I think Dr. Swinkowski will talk a little bit more about expert opinion. Hmm. How did we get into levels of evidence in orthopedics? Well, really, in, I think January, or I think in about 2001, a series of articles were written in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery about how to critically read the literature, similar to those published by Dr. Sackett in the 80s. And then in 2003, um, an article was written by the editors, including uh, one of them was Dr. Swinkowski, on um, the fact that every article submitted would need to have a level of evidence assigned. So they outlined their purpose for why this was. And first, it was to fam familiarize readers with the concept um, and hopefully help them to determine uh, how, how to apply those levels of or those those findings of that article to their own practice. For example, applying the findings of a level one um, topic or study would be much different or um, have a much less uh, perhaps uh, firm findings than a level four study. Also, they were hoping to be able to improve the levels of evidence. And I think Dr. Bhandari touched on the fact that uh, 10 or 11% now of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery articles published are level one studies, but the vast majority are not, obviously. And then it enables us to um, assess over time what the levels of evidence are in our various articles. Since the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery has done this, most of the other orthopedic journals have also taken this 
um, this approach. And um, they published their table with the explanation of the levels of evidence, and I'll put that up. Um, it'll be familiar to most people. It should be remembered that levels of evidence really is the basis for our modern clinical practice guidelines as well, and how we determine what's a, a, a high, highly recommended guideline is determined on the level of evidence with the studies backing it up. So here is the, oops, somehow I lost my, there we go. Here's the table we all see in the, um, the, uh, the instructions for authors, and it goes through the different levels of evidence and the types of studies across the top so that you can determine which sort of um, uh, assignment to give your study. That's it. Great, thanks, Deb. Um, yeah. So uh, as you point out, it's been 17 years since uh, Jim Wright and I, both of whom were deputy editors at JBGS at the time, introduced levels of evidence to the field of orthopedic surgery. And as you correctly stated, uh, all journals subsequently followed and all of the major scientific meetings have followed with assigning levels of evidence in the program uh, for papers presented at the podium. Um, we have uh, slowly increased the number of uh, level one manuscripts that we published. It ticks up ever so slowly. Uh, the last uh, time that we were able to assess a full year, it was at 12%. Uh, we have hit now 17 years of experience with assigning levels of evidence. And as recently as uh, 2015, uh, Bob Marks uh, and I, uh, updated the uh, levels of evidence and made a new table. And the new table um, really emphasizes the clinical application of the research findings with an added column of what is the question. And uh, such details uh, to help the reader is, is this uh, in a diagnostic study, is the early detection worthwhile? Is, is the diagnostic test uh, accurate? in a prognostic study, what's the natural history of the, the condition, et cetera. So it helps uh, the reader or the consumer of the, uh, the manuscript how to apply the uh, levels of evidence in their own practice. But orthopedics is an incredibly broad field. Um, uh, I like to say to my colleagues uh, who practice in GYN, for example, that their surgical field consists of about eight diagnoses. And when you look at the CPT codes in the United States, uh, orthopedic surgeons are 3% of the orthopedic surgeons who own 40% of the CPT codes. So what that means is that the breadth of our field, when you think about it, hand surgery, shoulder, spine, uh, trauma, uh, on and on, pediatrics, on and on and on, and many of the procedures that we do uh, are never going to be the kind of uh, questions that we can apply to a, in a randomized format. The, the, the numbers of subjects are just never gonna be there. An example uh, I would use frequently when I speak about this in the podium is a, an ACL rupture in a 50-year-old rheumatoid. Uh, that, that you're never gonna do an RCT on that. So we, in order to have some uh, evidence on which to base practice decisions, we really do need cohort studies, ideally whenever possible to upgrade them to match cohort studies. And we could get into discussing what's the best ways to match in a cohort study. And even with uh, uh, case reports, there are 
uh, entities which uh, we will all see in our careers that we'll only see once or twice in a 30 to 35 year career. And it would be very, very helpful to have somewhere that we could reference uh, how a diagnosis was made, what the treatment was, and what the outcome is in order to base some level of uh, prior history on our treatment decision-making with the patient. That's what we're trying to achieve with JBJS Case Connector is a compilation of very, very rare conditions, how they were treated or diagnosed, and what the ultimate outcomes were. And then the, the last comment I'll make before kicking it back to Mo is I do think there is value in expert opinion. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that ha having the opinion of somebody who's spent 30 to 40 years in a field looking at the evidence uh, as it evolves uh, with uh, humility and honesty can actually offer uh, a guidance uh, to a young surgeon who, who is uh, struggling with a treatment decision making or a young uh, patient family that's struggling, struggling with a decision. The, the expertise that's available and the experience with the literature is worth something. Uh, and um, I, I, I hope uh, others uh, agree with that. Um, 